Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Settle our hearts and our minds, and allow us to know and feel your presence this evening as we dive into your word. Lord, we ask that you speak to us. We give you thanks and praise for all of the ways that you have showered us with your grace and your love today, especially those that went unnoticed and unthanked. And we thank you especially for this time as we gather in community to dive into your word and allow you to speak words of direction, of comfort, of conviction, words maybe even of challenge to us. We pray as always tonight that when we enter into the words of scripture, we would encounter you, your loving embrace, and your promise of hope for us. We ask your Holy Spirit to be present, to remove from us any distractions, worries, or anxieties so that we can be open to receive whatever you have in store for each one of us. You knew every single one of us would be here tonight, Lord. So help us to receive the unique message you have for each of us. Guide us during our study, our discussion, our reflection. And we ask that you bless us each in the ways that we most need it. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. Come on in. We are in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Again, this is the gospel for this Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Easter, and it is the beginning of the passage of the Good Shepherd, although we're not going to actually get to the part where Jesus talks about being a good shepherd. Uh, we're going to talk, he's going to be talking about being uh, the sheepfold, the gate to the sheepfold. And so we're going to read through this twice through. First time through, I invite you to just uh, paint this picture in your mind, okay? You may have heard these words before. Try and place yourself in this scene. Um, this is immediately after... Jesus heals the man born blind, uh, and this happens either uh, between two very prominent feasts in Jerusalem. I'll talk about why it's sometimes difficult to know which one, but he's in Jerusalem and he's speaking to crowds, some of which are Pharisees and scribes there, and he's being particularly critical of the way that they are not seeing in the way that God sees. They are not following the law in the way that God God intended, uh, and he's offering criticism by this allegory of considering himself as the gate for the sheep. So we're going to read through these 10 verses. Just kind of set yourself in this scene as best you can as we pray through this passage. John 10, verses 1 through 10. The Good Shepherd. Amen, amen, I say to you. Whoever does not enter a sheepfold through the gate, but climbs over elsewhere, is a thief and a robber. But whoever enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has driven out all his own, he walks ahead of them, and the sheep follow him, because they recognize his voice. But they will not follow a stranger. They will run away from him 
because they do not recognize the voice of strangers. Although Jesus used this figure of speech, they did not realize what he was trying to tell them. So Jesus said again, Amen, amen, I say to you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and slaughter and destroy. I came so that they might have life and have it more abundantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read through this a second time. There's room up here if you'd like to join. Uh, we're going to read through this a second time. Second time through, I invite you to listen particularly to the words as they are being spoken. You can follow along in your Bible, but try and remove from your mind now anything but the words. And listen if there's any particular word or phrase that stands out to you personally. Okay, this is not to interpret the passage theologically. This is to connect to you personally. So what resonates with you? What speaks to you? What sparks a memory, an emotion, connects to something going on in your own life? Remember those particular words and details uh, as we read through this one more time. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Amen, amen, I say to you. Whoever does not enter a sheepfold through the gate, but climbs over elsewhere, is a thief and a robber. But whoever enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. As he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has driven out all his own, he walks ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. But they will not follow a stranger. They will run away from him because they do not recognize the voice of strangers. Although Jesus used this figure of speech, they did not realize what he was trying to tell them. So Jesus said again, Amen, amen, I say to you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and slaughter and destroy. I came so that they might have life and have it more abundantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to reflect back over this passage, especially the things that stood out to you, why you think they did, and any questions that arose within you as we read this. If you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know what those things are. But for those of us here, we're going to spend about the next 10 minutes at your tables. Feel free to share what stood out to you, why you think it did, any questions that this uh, arose in you. And as we come back together, uh, we'll share those questions and reflections in a larger group. So take about the next 10 minutes. Really? Yeah. So a lot to unpack in this very short passage. And so I want to give you a little bit of context as to where this is positioned in the Gospel of John. As I mentioned, in John chapter 9, we read this on, I believe, the fourth Sunday of Lent uh, as part of the second scrutiny. It is the, um, the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9. And when Jesus does this, it's in the middle of a big festival in Jerusalem, a pilgrimage feast called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And at that time, you may remember, large candelabras are lit in the temple area. There's baptismal water imagery of water being poured on the steps of the temple and it flowing out into the city. That's what happens for seven days. They, they build booths, these little campfire kind of tents outside of the city. They live in them for seven days to be reminded of God's faithfulness in the desert, how he traveled with them as a pillar of fire, how he provided water for them from the rock uh, during the time of the 40 years wandering in the desert under the leadership of Moses. Okay, so that... That was just happening. During that time, he heals the man born blind. That man is brought before the Pharisees, the elders. They question him. They throw him out. And at the end of this, that man finds Jesus. And this is in verse, uh, let's see, 39 of chapter 9. Jesus says, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see might see and those who do see might become blind. And then it says, some of the Pharisees who were there with him heard this and said to him, surely we are not also blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you are saying we see, so your sin remains. And then immediately we have this passage. So this is being placed by John right here to be an immediate follow-up to the criticism against the Pharisees for not being able to see as God sees. Not being able to be the shepherds, the leaders of the people that they are called to be. Okay, he's also speaking a lot of the imagery that you will see in, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 34. The entire chapter of Ezekiel 34 is called the parable of the shepherds. I want to read you little bits of it. I'm not going to read you the whole thing because it's long, but I want to read you little bits of it. See if it sounds familiar. Uh, Ezekiel saying here, let me see where do I want to start. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been pasturing themselves. It goes on. So they were scattered for lack of a shepherd and became food for all the wild beasts. They were scattered and wandered all over the mountains and high hills. Over the entire surface of the earth, my sheep were scattered. No one looked after them or searched for them. It continues, because my shepherds did not look after my sheep, but pastured themselves and did not pasture my sheep. Therefore, shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. I am coming against these shepherds. I will take my sheep out of their hand. I will deliver my flock from their mouths so it will not become their food. I myself will search for my sheep and examine them. I will lead them out from among the peoples and gather them from the lands. I will bring them back to their own country and pasture them upon the mountains. See what we're getting at here? And it ends at the end of the chapter. Yes, you are my flock. You people are the flock of my pasture. And I am your God, oracle of the Lord. So this is a very familiar prophecy to Jewish people about shepherds, the leadership of Israel, who are failing the flock, the people. And the one who is prophesied to come will come as the true shepherd who will say, I am your God. Jesus comes confronting the shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees, and the leadership using that exact same type of language. This is no mistake. And so John positions it right here, even though it says in 1022, the feast of the dedication was then taking place in Jerusalem. So it's positioned either between these two feasts. It's most likely happening during the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. So again, a lot of light imagery. It's the time in which the temple was purified and cleansed. Also a lot of baptismal imagery, similar to the Feast of Booths. And it's positioned between these two feasts. Scholars kind of disagree as to when this happened. But what's important is that John positions it here for a reason. 
to show that he is confronting the corrupt leadership of Jerusalem, that they are not being the shepherds that they are called to be. And so he is saying, claiming to be the prophesied one in Ezekiel 34 and elsewhere in the Old Testament, who's going to be the new shepherd, who's going to call his sheep by name, who's going to lead them and take them away from this leadership. And he will lead them himself to new pastures. Hey, so that it's important to know the positioning of this because then we can understand Jesus is doing something very controversial. He's confronting the leadership here. He's not just saying nice things about sheep and shepherds and sheepfolds, all right? And then if you know anything about sheep, anyone ever been on a farm or been around sheep before? Okay, oh, quite a few people. Okay, so you may know that sheep are very stupid. They're not very smart, okay? They can be trained to be very smart by good shepherds and good sheepdogs. They can be trained to know what they're doing, but they are very, very dumb. And the reason for that is mainly because the, the way their eyes are set on their face, they have very bad depth perception. They're, if you look at a sheep, their eyes are like way back, there's huge separation. But they have really good peripheral vision. So if they can keep an eye on the other people in the flock, they will travel together. But they don't really know where they are going. Okay, They're very kind of blinded, which is why sheepdogs and shepherds are trained very, very well to keep them herded because they will just go completely off of a cliff, okay? In fact, that happened, I think, back in like 2000-something. There was a story out of Turkey from USA Today that said uh, thousands of sheep, just without their shepherds were on break, thousands of sheep just went off a cliff in Turkey to their death because they were just all following each other because their death perception is so bad, okay? I was once at a sheep shearing in New Zealand, and I was standing there, and there were, all these sheepdogs were jumping on the backs of all these sheep, doing all these amazing tricks. And these sheep were just standing there like they had no idea what was going on, flies flying in and out of their eyes. And I turn, and there's two sheep behind a gate right behind me. One of them is asleep, a horned sheep. And the sheep next to him is awake, who's backing his rear end up against the horn of the sheep to itch himself. That's what I turn around to. That's kind of the, you know, the mental capacity of sheep, you can imagine, okay? And you may be laughing, but who are the sheep in this parable? Us. We are the sheep, okay? So we need leadership. We need someone to tell us what it is that we need to do. Uh, also, the imagery here of a sheepfold. The sheepfold is a real thing. It's usually about, I don't know, like hip height, uh, especially on a taller person, hip height. Um, sheep can't usually get out of it because they're more tightly enclosed. They can jump a little bit, but they, they don't really bother because they're not threatened. It's a place where they're kept safe. And at this time, there were usually multiple shepherds who would have their flocks in one big sheepfold. And so shepherds still to this day have unique calls for their sheep. You may have seen videos like this or been exposed to this if you've been around sheep. That they'll say, call my sheep and you can do, you can do whatever you want. But hey, get over here. You start like, nah, like trying to get them to come and they won't even budge. They won't even acknowledge your existence. And then the shepherd will make his unique call and all of them will suddenly like spring into life and gather around. And that's to separate the flocks. The flocks from a very young age are trained to hear the call of their particular shepherd. And so at this time, there were a lot of different people probably shepherding sheep for wealthy landowners, and they would all come together in one communal sheepfold, so not everyone had to watch their flock 24-7. And they would trade shifts on who guarded the gate. And if someone wanted to come and steal a sheep, or if someone wanted to you know, get one for a sacrifice because they couldn't afford one, they would have to try and sneak over the wall and get past this person guarding the gate of the sheep. Shepherds uh, often, for this reason, were not considered particularly religious people, or uh, at least not very obedient religious people, because they're often constantly tending to their flocks, not able to always observe all of the uh, purification or cleansing laws of Judaism, not always able to observe the Sabbath. And if they could, it was because they were contracting non-Jewish shepherds to help them, and so they're 
they're integrating with all these non-Jewish people, which at this time was kind of a no-no. So they're not considered the most admirable of people for Jesus also to compare himself to. So all of this is very upside down. It's important to know all of this because it reveals to us the type of shepherd that Jesus is promising to be. Notice the language he uses here. Normally what a shepherd will do, yes, he does have a unique call, but he does not love his sheep. You know, his sheep are for work, for a profit, to make wool, you know, maybe some to make milk, to make cheese, some to be offered as a sacrifice for meat. You're certainly at this time not naming your sheep. You know, you're, you're breeding your sheep for sacrifice, you know, so it, it doesn't really matter who the sheep are. You need them to survive. And the more you name them and connect to them, the harder it's going to be to sacrifice them, right? So it helps to kind of keep your distance. And instead of operating out of love for these sheep, you operate out of fear. You have to scare the sheep into doing what you want them to do and to go where you want them to go. So a normal shepherd will drive the sheep from behind and will hit the sheep with his crook or will get the use of dogs to, to yip at the, the heels of the sheep to force them forward. And then they'll circle around to make sure they don't go anywhere dangerous. Notice Jesus says, does something different here. He's saying that the shepherd will lead the sheep. They will follow him. He will call them by name. He will do so with love. And it will not lead to our slaughter, which is the only thing sheep were really bred for at that time. But it will be for our good, that he will be slaughtered for us. So there's a bit of a paradox here, a bit of a comparison. That Jesus is comparing himself to the gate, eventually to a shepherd, but unlike any shepherd that has ever existed before confronting leaders who are not being good leaders and professing himself to be a leader like there has never been before. But still in the line of these very prominent people in the Old Testament. Who are some famous shepherds in the Old Testament? Moses, David. Anyone have a guess as to who the first shepherd was? Abel's close. Adam. Adam is entrusted with the care of everything in the garden, including the animals, the herds of animals. Okay, that is his role. Abel is the first who is explicitly called a herder of sheep. And he is so devoted to the Lord that his brother Cain is jealous and kills him. So even though the shepherds are all throughout the Old Testament, they are not often seen as the idolized people. Adam is the one who does not protect even the garden and allows original sin to come into the world. Abel, the victim of the first murder in the Bible. Uh, Noah is a tender of the flocks. And he is called to build this great ship to save humanity, to get these animals, to herd them into the ship, both clean and unclean, uh, so that the clean ones can be offered for sacrifice. Uh, Jacob, also known as Israel, is a herder of flocks, a very successful one at that, who breeds favorable flocks for himself so that he can leave uh, his father-in-law, who tricks him into marrying both his daughters. Moses, David, Amos, one of the prophets, is also a, a, a shepherd. This is a huge uh, archetype in the Old Testament. And not only that, God himself is called a shepherd all throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you one guess as to what the psalm is for this Sunday. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I shall want. Psalm 23. That's the psalm for this Sunday for good reason. Okay, so God, I know it is a pretty commonly used psalm, but uh, God himself is believed even before this to be our shepherd, to guide us. And so all of this coming together, culminating in this moment where Jesus reveals this, so that he can confront the corrupt leadership of Jerusalem 
and show that the ways that they're leading are common to just normal shepherds. They're operating out of fear. They're leading from behind, kind of as if there's this blindness being operated from. They don't know them by name. They don't care. And they're leading them to their slaughter because all they care about is obedience to the law. And they just call out and criticize everyone who is not following the law and falling short. Jesus is the good shepherd, which is the very next verse, which we will not read this year. In fact, this chapter, chapter 10 of John, is broken up over three years. We always read it on the fourth Sunday of Easter, but we read a part of it during cycle A, a part of it during cycle B, and a part of it during cycle C. So you have to wait three years to get every single chunk of chapter 10 for some reason. So it won't be another year till you hear another chunk of John 10 on a Sunday, on a Sunday. But nonetheless, this is the imagery that we are given. Jesus here compares himself to the gatekeeper, the shepherd, and the important one, I think, for our discussion, this is the last thing that we can open up to questions, is that he says, I am the gate. Now you may be familiar with this, but in the Gospel of John, there are several I am statements of Jesus. And they're not uttered by accident. I am, in Greek, ego emi, is the translation of the name of God, Yahweh. It was the forbidden name of God. You were not allowed to speak it, or it was something punishable by death. It was a a sin of blasphemy to utter the name of God out loud. Only the high priest could say it, and he could only do so once a year on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus is throwing it around in Greek left and right in the Gospel of John. Seven different I am statements. Well, he does say, before Abraham was, I am. But other than that, different I am statements. I am the gate. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the fruitful vine. And the one that I forgot. I am... Which one did I not say? I'm the bread of life, John 6. All of these, and in fact, you can do a very cool sacramental analysis and align each of these with the seven sacraments that they all kind of align with. One. I'm the good shepherd, the priesthood. I'm the fruitful vine, marriage. I am the, oh, the way, the truth, and the life, confirmation. I'm the bread of life, Eucharist, etc., etc. And so this one, I am the gate. My sheep know me. No one comes to the Father except through me is very indicative of the sacrament of baptism. That anyone who seeks salvation can only be saved through baptism and through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the Catechism teaches. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. Paragraph 1257 of the Catechism says that God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but God is not bound by his sacraments. So God can save people who are unbaptized. However, the normative way of salvation that he has revealed to us is to come to him in faith and be baptized. Because he is the gate. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the source of our salvation. And so what's being revealed here, Jesus is criticizing the leadership and saying, they're not going to save you. They can't. They are the thieves and the robbers seeking to lead you astray and operate out of fear. I am coming, and I know you by name. And I am going to lead you. I'm not going to let you operate out of fear, but lead you out of love to a place where you will not be destroyed, where you will not be slaughtered where you will receive, John 10.10, a verse to commit to memory so that you will have life and have it more abundantly. That is why Jesus came. Not to catch us in a slip-up, not to show us when we're not abiding by the law like the Pharisees do, but to promise us a life of abundance, green pastures where we do not need to fear, for he is constantly guiding us and constantly with us, and he knows each one of us by name. Recognize in, in the story of the resurrection in John chapter 20, 
Mary Magdalene, she does not recognize Jesus at first, right? When does she finally recognize him? When he says her name. And the same thing is true for us. When we hear our shepherd speak our name, we hear him call out to us. So we begin to fully know who we are and who he is. And so the question really to reflect on, at least for me in this passage, is, well, does God speak to you? Yes, but are you hearing him? Are you hearing him speak to you? How often do you let him speak to you? And how often are you instead listening to every other voice or any other voice? Because like the sheep that we are, we can't always see ahead of us, but sometimes it's too easy to look to our left and our right and listen to the people around us and let them be our main influence instead of trusting that our shepherd, even when we can't see him, even when we don't perceive him, because we have really bad spiritual depth perception, he is still there leading us and calling us by name. So with all that being said, any other questions, comments about this passage, things that stood out? Yes, sir. Um, it's more about just kind of the expectation with the, uh, the name of God, mm-hmm. being able to say it once a year. Yes. There's points, like in the Psalms, for instance, where it says like, the Lord, and in English, it's translated in all capitals. Yes. From what I understand, that's literally just Yahweh. Yes. Um, what would they do reading those psalms? Um, they would say Adonai okay. instead. Yeah, Adonai was the replacement word for Yahweh when you couldn't say it. And even when you said that or thought the name of God, you would bow in reverence. And the Jews still do that to this day faithfully. And we do that also. If you ever notice, Father Evan is very faithful to this. Anytime you utter the name of God, Jesus, the Blessed Mother, or any saint on which feast day you are celebrating in the liturgy, you bow when you say or hear their name. Yeah, but yeah, they would usually say Adonai. Yeah. Other thoughts? Things that stood out to you? Doesn't have to be a question. Yes. I have a question about the gates. Yes. Mary's called the gate of heaven. Peter Mm. is given the keys to the gate. Mm -hmm. So, and Jesus is the shepherd. Mm -hmm. He's standing at the gate. Yeah. So, are are we? Am I interpreting this correctly? That there's not many gates. There's just one, and just different people were going to go go through. Yes, yes, yes. There is only, in the context of theology, like in terms of our salvation, there's only one gate. Everyone who is saved and ever will be saved, ever was saved, was saved because of what Jesus did for them on the cross. Even if they did not profess faith in Jesus and he found some other way to save them, salvation is only possible for any person because of Jesus. So he is the only gate. That's why he says elsewhere in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not a way. I am the way. Yes, the only gate. Yeah. It was St. Augustine who said that Christ's sheepfold is the Catholic Church. And so that he is the gate that leads us through baptism into the family of faith. And you'll notice in here, Jesus says, I think this is in verse 9, whoever uh, enters through me will be saved and will come in and go out. Come in to the sheepfold of Christ the Church and then be sent back out. That's very baptismal missionary imagery. Uh, And so also speaking to this kind of baptismal identity that it's only in the name of Jesus that we're baptized. Well, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Trinity. But because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, he is the only gate. And he knows our name. Yeah, he does. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, Kind of going off of that a little bit. How do 
there's some people that probably go through their whole lives without knowing Jesus. How do they get Saved. Yes. So the Catechism has a paragraph on this, uh, paragraph 1260, I think, and it's uh, a version of baptism called baptism by desire. So the normative way that people are baptized is baptism by water. And that's how most of us, all of us were baptized. There's baptism by blood if someone is killed for their belief in Christianity but does not yet have the opportunity to be baptized. They're considered baptized by blood. The third way, baptism by desire, is basically the church is uh, saying that those who would have professed faith had they known the revelation of Jesus Christ have the opportunity to be saved. And so the language that's used in the catechism is basically those who did not yet know the, the, the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, but lived in response to the truth that had been revealed to them. So like whatever good moral laws exist in their culture or their society have the ability to experience salvation because they would have explicitly desired baptism had it been revealed to them. So it's a kind of condition that is um, specified in the Catechism, paragraph 1260, for those who you know, may live in some remote culture, never hear the name of Jesus, never uh, at least hear it promoted to them or shared with them in a way that they understand um, or that's accurately depicted, they still have the opportunity to be saved. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes? Yeah, I mean, the, the Bible also says anyone who rejects me, I will reject him. Like whoever denies me before uh, my heavenly father, I will, my heavenly father will deny them. Yes. Yes. So there, there's difference. There's differences here. There's, you know, um, what you're, what, what that's explicitly saying is apostasy. So apostasy is the reality of someone who knows the fullness of the truth of Jesus Christ and openly rejects it and leaves. Okay. There are other levels of that, like heresy are those beliefs that people who openly believe in Jesus Christ, but they believe something that is wrong or they profess something that is not doctrinally correct, but is not affecting whether or not they're going to be saved. You know, they just have a, a misunderstanding about a church teaching or something like that, or they miss, they miss uh, speak on the Trinity or something, which is a very hard thing to talk about, you know? And then there's other levels below that, like something that might just be a, a misunderstanding, or I can't remember the exact words that the church uses, but um, not everyone, you know, you cannot be of another faith and also be apostatizing the Catholic faith unless you were formerly Catholic. So anyone who's of another faith, who's never been Catholic, never been adequately revealed the fullness of truth in the Catholic Church, cannot be judged according to it because they don't know it. They cannot be considered on the same level as someone who openly knew the truth and rejected it. Okay? Now, those people still have the opportunity for salvation if they come back and they repent and, and God is still seeking after them. No one is... Uh, lacking in second, third, fourth, infinite chances in this lifetime. But those who the Bible speaks explicitly of condemnation would be more so those who know the truth and openly reject it. Those who are ignorant of the truth, uh, they don't have the ability to reject it. So they're only judged according to the level of truth that's been revealed to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. What does it mean... And of course, this is like me misunderstanding these basic things. But when Christ says to have a life and have it more abundantly, what I have a hard time with sometimes is 
you know, words like faith or hope or love, we love to use very poetic language and love mm -hmm. and all these things. But a lot of the times I'm, it's never explained to me kind of what exactly that looks like. Um, what does he mean by having life here? And especially how do you live that out in, you know, today, you know, this day and age, something like Gage referenced a couple weeks ago, where it's like a lot of us just walk around with these like, I think many of us, our wounds are more psychological these days, or like sure. we just like have such a insane culture we live in, so it makes us insane, and it's hard to kind of make parallel this idea of having life with the things that a lot of us walk around with every day. Sure, you know what I mean. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe like if you have an answer to that, or like what your thoughts are on that. Or yeah, it's not really a question. So the word that's used here that they might have life. There's two words for life primarily used in Greek and scripture. Uh, psyching, which is physical, natural life, and zoeing, which is supernatural life, uh, like eternal life in heaven. Here it is zoeing, eternal life in heaven. So in recognizing Jesus is, is the gate and only entering through into the sheepfold through him means that we have the opportunity for abundance in eternal life. However, that reality, that hope should affect our disposition of joy here on earth. But it doesn't mean that we're suddenly going to have all the money and all the health. That's the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. It's very prevalent in our country that if you um, abide by the teachings of the church, if you're faithful enough and you give us enough money, God is going to bless your life and everything's going to be great. Uh, and that is not biblical at all, whatsoever. All of the prosperity and abundance that is promised has to do with our eternal hope in heaven. But it doesn't mean that we are meant to walk around miserable. In fact, I was just recording a podcast today where I was, I said, uh, I think one of the, the most prevalent problems in Christianity today is whiny Christians. Because there's nothing more miserable about Christianity for the, pro the, the goal of evangelization to share with other people, look how great it is to believe in Christian or to believe in Jesus and to be Christian than Christians who are whining and complaining left and right. And so, yes, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, but we also don't sulk in the things that are difficult in this life. That's why we have the beauty of redemptive suffering, that even in our suffering, it can be offered joyfully as a prayer for others, as a sacrifice for others. Um, so the abundance that we are offered does not necessarily mean, you know, everything's fine and dandy here in this life, or suddenly everything is going to be better. But I do believe that the disposition and the effect of God's grace does change us in this life. It's not just a promise for eternity. So there's kind of a both and there. You know, it's about eternal life, but also our physical life here, though not perfect, will experience growth in abundance. Yeah. So you could imagine it as like um, if you are in the, you know, the fullest relationship with God that you can have, your cup is full. This language, so that you might have life and have it more abundantly, might mean that your capacity, your cup is growing. That you can still be full, but you can be even more full than you could have been full before if that makes sense. So God has the ability to do that infinitely in us and to grow our ability to receive his grace, our capacity for his love. So abundance could mean a lot of different things. So all, all that we can be sure of is that the level of abundance you have experienced thus far in your life is not close to the fullness that he has intended for you, both in this life and in the next. And because that's a promise, we know that it will continue to be abundant the more we seek after him, the more that we turn out the more that we follow him, even though there will be sufferings and difficulties in this life. To answer your question. Oh, yeah.
Awesome. Greg. I remember last year, you talked about the fact that I was mentioning here that you see these old biblical movies and these youth gates open up to Jerusalem or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, and like the sheep and the people and the horses. I mean, it was just jamming through, like going on to Walmart, you know? Yes. And it's like, uh, but you had mentioned last year the fact that this particular gate, there were smaller gates in the walls around the city. Oh, yes. Uh, like the sheep and stuff to go in. And the purpose of them was like the main gates were closed, but they had these smaller gates so that no army could try to go through with so many people at any one time because they could be, then they, they could defend the city and kill them as they went through. Yes, yeah, that I believe is uh, has to do with the passage on um, um, how hard is, is it for a rich man to enter heaven, harder than uh, the camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Yeah. And there are biblical scholars who... Uh, align that with certain openings in the walls of Jerusalem and certain pathways up to Jerusalem that are very skinny, very uh, difficult to traverse, that have sometimes historically been uh, nicknamed the eye of a needle, even though there's no real uh, definitive historical association that we can be sure of between those things. But if you go to Jerusalem, there are these little cutouts in the walls that when the city gates are closed, it is enough for a person to potentially squeeze through if they need to get into the city. Uh, and so the thought was, if you needed to get your camel full of goods, you would have to strip your camel completely, get them down on their knees, and push them through. And it was kind of an image for us that sometimes we need to strip ourselves of all of our attachments, get down on our knees, and have someone help push us through in our moments of difficulty, especially if we have attachments, earthly and worldly attachments. So, yes, but it had, had to do with that passage of the rich young man. Yeah. But another livestock-oriented, you know, <laughs> image, so... Still helpful, yeah. No matter what, we're you know we're sheep. There is this really uh, hilarious reflection on um, the colt, you know, and the the donkey or whatever that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and it's this long reflection. I, I can't. It's on the internet somewhere. I'm sure. I don't think I invented this. I may have, but I'm pretty sure it's on the internet about how like God can use us and our talents. God uses you know all of these random people throughout history, and it ends with, and God can even use an ass like me. And that's like just how this whole long, profound reflection ends. And I just love that, because I, I relate to that a lot. So, um, so a lot of good livestock-oriented images for us. So that is a biblical word, donkey. Anyway, yes. <laughs> so what kind of stood out for me was like, there's, there's like the right path, and then there's like people who can steer you away from that. Yes. Um, and I want to know, like, what does that look like, uh, and what has resulted from those sheep or from those uh, thieves and robbers who may have led other people into a wrong path? We thought they were probably the ones who got that path. Hmm. I see what you're saying, because you could argue that the Pharisees thought they were doing the right thing. You know, which we've talked about before. The Pharisees were very passionate about the law, and that not necessarily in itself is a bad thing. Um, but in their own blindness, maybe accidentally leading people astray. Um, I think the, the dividing point comes when they are confronted with that. You know, Jesus confronts them numerous times in the Gospels to show them, like, you are like the blind leading the blind. And they respond like they did in the previous chapter where they throw somebody out, and they reject what Jesus is saying, calling them blind calling him a hypocrite, saying that he does these things because he himself is in league with the devil and, and so on and so forth. So I think even if we are 
maybe going down the path that we think is right, and it turns out that it's not, we still need to have enough humility to admit when corrected that we need to change direction. And that's the difference. Um, let me, I'll put it this way. Who has a plan for your life? Who has a plan for your life? God. Who else has a plan for your life? We do. Who else? The devil. The devil has a plan for your life. It's not good. Newsflash. Spoiler alert. Not good. Does not lead to abundance. Last time I checked. And all three of those plans, God's plan, our plan, and the devil's plan, are all kind of ping-ponging. God over here, the devil over here, and we're kind of, you know, navigating our way through closer to one uh, or the other, depending on where we are in life. And it, on that journey, we need to always have the humility to correct. But I think the important thing, as I've mentioned before, is that we continue going. Because I think there are a lot of people out of scrupulosity who will just park on the path and won't move because they're too afraid of making a mistake, too afraid of going in the wrong direction. And that invokes to me a passage that I quoted yesterday at Catholicism 101 in Revelation 3.16. I would rather you be hot or cold for you. If you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. God would rather you run in the wrong direction because then all it takes is a little bit of course correction for your momentum to bring you right back to where you were and even further in the right direction. But if you're just sitting in the middle of the sea and not putting your sail up, well, you're just still lost. But if you put your sail up, even if it's in the wrong direction, all you need to do is just move the rudder and catch the wind back the right way. And so as long as we continue to move, even if we are going in the wrong direction and we have the humility to course correct, that's the difference. But if we're too proud, like the Pharisees are multiple times in Scripture, to admit that we might be wrong, that is where our plan suddenly is getting a lot more parallel to the devil's plan for our life and leading to a place of destruction and separation from God. Other questions, thoughts? Yes. Have you seen the chosen one yet? I have, yes, and I love it. Yes, I love it. Two thumbs up. Five stars. There's some things in there that are not as, um, let's say, What's the word? Well, it, it does a lot of um, speculation, which I really enjoy. I really like all the speculation storylines. But there, I, I assume, based on the creators being more evangelical Protestant, even though they have a Catholic priest and a rabbi as consultants on the show, I can see already little snippets of areas where they're probably not going to be in as close conformity to our Catholic interpretation of many upcoming scriptures. I'm really curious as to what they're going to do when they get to John 6 and the Bread of Life discourse, if they include it at all. Uh, you know, the Last Supper, things like that, that are very, very, uh, Jesus giving the keys to Peter as, you know, leader of the church, how those things are going to be handled. So, but so far, I'm really enjoying it. So <laughs> I have high hopes. It's hard to like, not do those. Yeah. It follows the text, like, you know, in a Catholic way. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, I don't know. Yeah. Other uh, reflections, questions, things that stood out to you? Yes. Uh, I could be mistaken, but I thought it was interesting your point about um, Jesus leading us. Mm -hmm. it, it, I think it shows a really clear shift in man's relationship to God. Yes. Compared to Exodus, where it's uh, crossing the Red Sea, it's the pillar of fire, if I'm not mistaken, that mm -hmm. forces the Israelites 
into the ocean. Moses asked mm -hmm. the angel of the Lord, are you fighting for us? Or are you for us or for the Egyptians? And he says, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, he just says, no. Yes. Um, and so I, I just saw that very clearly, just this sort of, like you were talking about, the kind of shepherds that are kicking and pushing from behind as opposed to yes. um, actual leadership. Yeah. And I think what the Old Testament people needed at the time of Exodus yeah. was not the confirmation that God is divisive and us against them, but just the, the knowledge that God is going to bring them out of slavery. And Jesus also confirms that and also has language like that. But I, I think you're absolutely right that Jesus now, you know, God made man becoming one of us, becoming so intimately close to our experience reveals himself as one who is not disconnected. Even though it's, it, it would be very difficult to interpret the Old Testament even that way because God comes down and self-identifies with his people, introduces himself to Moses in the burning bush, tells us his name, allows us to command his power and presence in the desert, in the temple, in the tabernacle. That is a very intimately close God when you, when you compare the one true God with all the other conceptions of gods and goddesses in history. Those people had no care for humanity. They were often warring with each other, using humanity as their playthings, often causing more violence and harm to humanity than good in all of those ancient stories. But the one true God is, is completely different. That's why these criticisms of like, well, all, all religions are basically the same. Or this, this very terrible atheist argument that's out there that like, well, you don't believe in all these other gods. I just believe in one less God than you. Anyone heard that argument? It's a really terrible uh, Richard Dawkins argument. Um, and it's just, yeah. It's just very bad because um, it makes no sense because uh, the one true God who exists is markedly different than all of those other gods that we don't believe in for many distinguishing factors and reasons. And so it's not a question of how many, but a question of why belief in the one. I don't know why I got on this topic, but my train of thought has ended. <laughs> oh, yes. And how God, you know reveals himself even in the Old Testament as this loving shepherd. That language, again, all over the Old Testament, but culminating in the person of Jesus and explicitly being told to us throughout this chapter. I would encourage you, read on throughout this week. Read all of John 10 and just sit with it and reflect on it, meditate on it. Maybe call up on, the, uh, on your phone or on your computer uh, one of the classic images of Jesus as the good shepherd where he has the lamb around his, his shoulders. Um, and I, I remember a really beautiful reflection from a priest once about that image. And he, uh, he was out with some shepherds. <clears throat> I can't remember where he was, maybe in the Midwest, maybe in the Holy Land, I don't know. But there was a lost sheep, and they had to go rescue it. And oftentimes what they would do when sheep would go astray is they would use their shepherd's crook to break their legs, to teach the sheep, don't go astray again. And what they would do once they broke their legs, they would bind their legs up, and they would carry them over their shoulders. And so the shepherd uh, didn't have to break this particular sheep's legs because it had fallen into a ditch and it was injured. And so the priest picks up this sheep and is walking back and he's like, this is just like the good shepherd. Like, I'm feeling so holy right now. And then this sheep proceeds to urinate all over the priest. And he had this amazing reflection in this moment of just him and Jesus and seeing Jesus on the cross and experiencing the effect of his own sin to Jesus as if he were the lamb urinating on the good shepherd and was just weeping while also being covered in sheep urine and walking miles back to the sheepfold. And it was just a really hilarious but also beautiful kind of analogy of how these, the way that Jesus speaks, like these very real life examples, 
even though we may not have an understanding of sheep and shepherds, like it can still be very relatable to us because Jesus cares for us. He tends our needs. We have many people in our life who do that. Many people who seek you know, to, to care for us and many people in the world who are seeking to herd us into a belief, into joining this particular faction or party or movement or trend or whatever it might be. And so we also have to be on guard against those trying to jump over the sheepfold, those thieves and robbers trying to steal our opinion, our attention away from the one true shepherd who knows our name, whose voice we can recognize if we are trained to listen. And so I return it again to that question. God is always speaking, but do you hear him? Do you take time to listen to him daily? How are you hearing him? What is he saying to you? Are those things that are regular parts of your prayer life? Because the shepherd is speaking and is not neglecting you. He has not forgotten you. He is still leading you. But oftentimes when we try and make out the direction of our life, again, we have bad spiritual depth perception. And so we need to sometimes stop and listen for the voice of the Lord. So we just know that we have enough direction to make the next step and then the next step and trust that he's leading us somewhere good, that he's not operating out of fear and that we do not simply stop and park ourselves out of scrupulosity and fear of doing something wrong, but we can trust in the good shepherd who is always leading us to verdant pastures where we can lie down. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this evening and this passage. We pray, Lord, as we uh, prepare for Mass this Sunday and we continue to reflect on this passage and all of John chapter 10, that we would encounter your tenderness and your loving heart toward us, your compassion toward us, though as dim as we can sometimes be as your flock, Lord, that you are still leading us, still calling us, knowing us each by name, loving us as we are in our faults, seeking to lead us to places of abundance. So help us to consistently listen to your voice, to hear the words that you are sharing with us, and to be guided by you, to allow ourselves to be led and not be so stubborn or proud in our way of thinking or our own plan for our lives that we end up leading ourselves and potentially others astray. Help us to have humility to admit when we've done wrong, when we've navigated too far down the wrong path, to allow ourselves to be corrected and always to be led by your loving embrace. For you are a shepherd who knows his sheep, who calls us by name. Help us this week to recognize your voice and to continue to enter through the only gate that is worth entering, the gate of salvation in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns greater and over all of our struggles, temptations, worries, and anxieties, now and forever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hope this